Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 2. Historians like to say that if you don't understand the past, you cannot understand the present. True enough, since for our narrative the present is AD 79, it's a good idea to skip back a while and consider how Rome got to this point. Lots to cover here, so let's get started. As we noted last time, Rome started counting down the years in 753 BC, year 1 AUC ab ure condita. Going back just a little farther, we find Aeneas, son of the goddess Venus, refugee from the Trojan War, who settles Alba Longa in Italy. His two grandsons quarreled over who should inherit the throne. One kills the other, forces his niece to become a vessel virgin so that she not have children. His plan fails. She has encountered the god Mars and born twin sons. Their wicked uncle, hoping to avoid offending the gods, puts the two boys in a basket and has it put in the Tiber River. Downstream, near what will become Rome, the basket gets stuck in the reeds, and a passing she-wolf who has lost her cubs finds and suckles the boys. They are then found and adopted by a shepherd and his wife. The twins grow up, realize who they are, and head to Alba Longa to take revenge on the wicked uncle. There are different versions, as happens in much of Roman history, but all agree that the boys then move downriver to establish a new city. Who gets to rule? Let the gods decide. The omens are open to different interpretations, the brothers quarreled over which brother the gods liked best, and the matter is settled when Romulus kills Remus and gives his own name to the settlement. The left bank of the Tiber may have had sentimental value for him, but as real estate it was not exactly prime. The hills were nice, but were surrounded by swamps prone to flooding. The place did have a shallow ford to get to the right bank, but otherwise, well, there was a reason why nobody objected when they moved in. To become a proper community, Rome needed more people, and as a startup venture, it was not discriminating about who could join. Wretched refuse welcome, as it says in the Statue of Liberty. Or, as the Roman historian Livy put it, Rome was an asylum for an indiscriminate crowd of freed men and escaped slaves looking to better their lot. Rome had seven kings in all, some good, some bad, the last one downright criminal. Him they kicked out in 509 BC and swore that Rome would never make that mistake again. Fortunately, the place was still small enough that the citizens could go back to minding their own business. None was too rich, none too poor, all were in it together, and the city and the people began to prosper. Which meant that it attracted outlanders who showed up from time to time to make trouble. Which, in turn, forced Romans to put down the plow, pick up swords, and defend and protect what was theirs. They fought a lot. Last episode, we discussed the Temple of Janus. By custom, the doors to the temple were closed in times of peace, open in times of war. By the end of the Republic, the first Emperor Augustus closed the doors, he said, for the third time ever. War was a seasonal affair, and in those days relatively close to home. All property owners were expected to serve. A citizen soldier could manage early spring plowing and planting, then a season of fighting and killing, and return home in time for autumn harvesting and storing. And as Romans were good at fighting, they didn't simply drive off invaders, 
they took their fight into invaders' land. The Romans were nothing if not broad-minded. If your tribe attacked Rome and lost, Rome was inclined to bring you into the Roman franchise. There were grades of membership. Full citizen, rarely given but not impossible. Half-citizen, quiwes sine suffragio, citizens without voting rights, or ally. You were required to supply soldiers for the next round of warfare, and there was always a next round of warfare. And, of course, the soldiers had to learn Latin, just as soldiers in the French Foreign Legion must learn French. By the middle of the 3rd century BC, Rome had quashed or co-opted virtually all of the Italian peninsula, including the old Greek colonies at the very bottom, which made them the Mediterranean's newest great power, one of several, the closest of which was Carthage. Carthage, founded by Phoenicians about the same time as Rome itself, merchants rather than farmers, holding most of the coast of North Africa and modern Spain, was a sea power with trade routes across the Mediterranean and as far off as Britain. Relations with Rome had been cordial. If the Romans were inclined to nobble some of Carthage's commercial competitors in the Greek cities of southern Italy, well, that was fine by Carthage. Problems arose over Sicily. The island was, and is, remarkably fertile. It commanded the sea lanes east to west, and it lay between Carthage and Italy. Inevitably, it became a point of contention, and what could not be worked out diplomatically must be settled by war. Three wars, all told, the Punic Wars, Punic, after Latin for Phoenician, starting in 264 BC and, last nail in the coffin, 146 BC, after which Rome controlled, or had client states, in Spain, North Africa, bits of the French Riviera. At this time also, Rome became involved in wars in the eastern Mediterranean, wars not necessarily of their own making. Details are complex, but the world was learning that if you went to war with Rome, or Rome with you, chances were good you would come out the loser. There are many fights with remnants of Alexander the Great's Hellenistic kingdoms and small powers. Rome was busy. The character of these wars, Carthage and Hellenistic, was, however, different from the wars that had unified Italy. Distant wars take more time and money. Earlier Roman citizen-soldier farmers fought against, well, other farmers. Their new foes, Greeks and Carthaginian and such, were a more alien sort. Besides all else, they were merchants, sophisticated, very unlike the Romans. More often than not, they hired mercenaries. Why not? They had the money. It was money that changed everything, as it does. These foreign wars provided opportunities for the clever and morally open-minded. Rome needed full-time soldiers, and these soldiers must be prepped, supplied with food and livestock and uniforms, none of it cheap. Once the fighting was over, there was the matter of liquidating assets, such as captives made slaves, cash, and artwork. There was also the managing of the newly taken territory, notably extracting taxes, a plum job for a tax farmer. The custom was to demand a certain sum of a region, then hire private contractors to collect it on behalf of the government, the contractors profiting by any amount over the original demand. The practice is condemned in the New Testament, but still went on in Christian Europe as late as the 19th century. There is good money in all of this if you were a connected Roman. Most people were not. And where did this leave the farmer-citizen-soldier? 
Short end of the stick, usually. Soldiering became a full-time job, which left Italian farms untended or undertended. Some men sold up entirely, dreaming like 19th century gold rushers of a rich payday, only to find that there was less there than promised. The loot, if there was loot, was unequally divided, the lion's share going to the men in charge. Foot soldiers got his pay and thanks for his service. For the connected, there were options for the money once back in Italy. Public works, if high-minded. High living, if low-minded. Real estate, if commercially minded. Over time, small patchwork of small farms turned into large patchworks, latifundia estates. If one happened to have newly captured slaves who could work the land, you could do well for yourself. Not so nice for the displaced farmers, many of them veterans, but that's life. Add to this, prime land in Sicily and North Africa was also snapped up. The price of grain went down. Prime land in Sicily and North Africa was also snapped up. The price of grain went down, and the surviving small farms back in Italy had to struggle to compete, or to sell out. Rome itself became a magnet for unemployed men, either veterans or failed small farmers, and the population exploded. By the way, some modern scholars think the situation was not quite so clear-cut. A small farm inherited by more than one son might not be enough to live on, but could be sold. But that's not how the Romans saw it, and we're following suit for now. Romans knew that this was a problem. The question became what, if anything, to do about it. Two schools of thought arose. Self-described optimates, best people, men with long pedigrees, military service, senior magistrates and consuls in the family tree, believed that the status quo was good enough and did not want to give up power. They had followers of lesser classes, as parties of the rich will do. Opposed to them were the self-described populares, people's party, also drawn from families of long pedigree, military service, senior magistrates and consuls in the family tree, who thought that the situation could not go on. Some argue that the populares were more interested in personal power than in helping their fellow man, an argument unprovable one way or the other. The first of the populares to do anything about the problem was Tiberius Gracchus. He was not just top tier, but top tier of the top tier. He was also a veteran. The story goes that on a visit to the countryside, he was struck by the large estates being worked by foreign slaves. This on land that had once been small family farms owned by fellow veterans who had come home with nothing. The answer to his mind was serious land reform, limiting the size of estates and handing back small patches to families in need. Unsurprisingly, most optimates objected. Gracchus used some novel, not to say underhanded, political maneuvering to get his way, which only got the optimates more angry. The matter came to a head in AD 133 when a mob of angry optimates in downtown Rome broke apart wooden stools and clubbed Tiberius to death. Score one for the status quo. Tiberius had a younger brother, Gaius, who had a familial obligation not to let his brother's murder pass. He also held the same political views as Tiberius. In his turn, some years later, Gaius too pushed for land reform and more besides, full citizenship to half-citizens, among other things. And in 122, he too, in his turn, was hounded to death by Optimates. Score two for the status quo. 
And so, for the first time since Romulus killed Remus, murder had become part of the political toolbox. Peace held for ten years, but the problems remained, and the next rattling of the status quo would arise from yet another foreign war, this time in part of the North African tribal lands previously administered by Carthage. In 112 BC, two gentlemen of Numidia, Jugurtha and Adherbal, were squabbling over control of their ancestral region. Rome, who considered the region a client state, stepped in to mediate a split. Jugurtha found the new lines unsatisfactory and had soldiers invade Adherbal's territory. Adherbal cried foul, and as Jugurtha's men had incidentally killed some Roman citizens in the confusion, the cry went up in Rome that Rome should become more directly involved. Jugurtha, however, had friends in Rome among the Optimates, and they dragged their heels. Enter Gaius Marius, a man of means if not of pedigree. This war he saw as an opportunity, and he volunteered to lead an army to avenge Rome. The ruling Optimates refused to approve the funds, so Marius used his own. He also did not bother with legal requirements, such as if you owned property, once a prerequisite for service. There were plenty of idle veterans and indigents in Rome. You were poor? No problem. So long as you were fit and willing, Marius would sign you up, provide a uniform and weapons and pay, and the promise of a share of any loot. Essentially, he bought an army, and with it, the loyalty of the soldiers. Men who prized money and solidarity to their paymaster over loyalty to the state. This alarmed many in the Senate, but Marius and his protege Sulla managed to subdue Jugurtha, and the mob cheered and gave their hero a triumphal parade. And when, a little later, German tribes began to menace Rome from the north, it was Marius who was sent to deal with them. Both wars meant more veterans, many of them non-Roman half-citizens. They and fellow Italian half-citizens claimed that they had been plenty patient, and that Rome owed them some give-back. Again, heels were dragged with predictable results. If violence was now an acceptable political tool, well then, half-citizens and allies in Italy would employ violence. The so-called social wars, 91 to 89 BC, exploded, burned brightly, and in the end, Rome conceded to their demands. So long, at least, as one had not actively engaged in fighting, which excluded many. The concessions were not enough to unite the Republic. If anything, politics became uglier, more polarized, more personal, and more dangerous. Marius was a champion of the Populares, Sulla, his one-time protege, of the Optimates. Both men and their factions had armies, both men were ruthless and vindictive. The political backing and forthing of the next few years gets complex, Enough to say that each side, once in power, subverted Roman law, drew up enemies' lists, confiscated great fortunes, executed political opponents without trial, and mounted the heads of dead enemies in the forum. Nervous times for Rome, but like any reign of terror, in time it burned out. Marius died of natural causes in 83 BC, lamenting that he could not have done more. Sulla, the last man standing, declared himself dictator and made legal changes, quashing gains of the populares. Then, after three years into widespread surprise, he retired to a villa far from town to write his memoirs and enjoy the company of his 17-year-old bride. He died in bed. 
Interestingly, given the current factionalism, it is about this time that we first see the letters SPQR appear on public monuments, Senatus Populusque Romanus. The phrase turns up in contemporary literature. Cicero, an enemy of Sulla who happened to survive the purges, used it a lot. It has a nice ring to it. Senate and people of Rome, it suggests a uniformity of interest and purpose between two parts of society. A cynic, of course, might infer the message that some Romans were more equal than others, as indeed some were. The rising generation of great men were not put off by their predecessors' bad behavior or the grim results. If anything, they took notes. Gnaeus Pompey, Pompey the Great, at a young age made his bones in Sulla's wars against Marius, where he got the moniker Aduleskin's Carnifex, Kid Butcher. He also served in Spain, North Africa, in Italy against rebel slave Spartacus, and in the Middle East, where he amassed a colossal fortune. Crassus, another of Sulla's lieutenants, became the richest man in Rome, in part by appropriating estates of Sulla's enemies and by his fire brigade. Fires were frequent in Rome, and Crassus would send his firefighters to any burning building, point out to the neighbors that they were in danger of losing everything if the fire spread, offered them pennies on the dollar, and, once the properties changed hands, ordered his men to put out the fire. Rounding out this impressive, if appalling, crew was the young Julius Caesar, a man of good family, little money, great ambition, and a talent for politicking. He came late to the game, but he too made a personal fortune, in his case by conquering all Gaul. They ruled together as the first triumvirate, but eventually all came to bad ends. Crassus tried to emulate Alexander the Great and invaded Parthia. Defeating him in battle, his enemies had molten gold poured down his throat, a witty reference to his thirst for wealth. Pompey, Optimates, became estranged as Caesar, Popularis, having subdued all three parts of Gaul, marched into Italy illegally and prompted a civil war. This struggle ended in Greece at Pharsalus, where Pompey, having lost the battle, fled to Egypt, where he was killed by his host, the fourteen-year-old pharaoh, who thought Caesar would be pleased. Caesar was not pleased, or said he was not. He used this insult to an honorable Roman and his one-time brother-in-law, as an excuse to ally himself with Pharaoh's older sister, Cleopatra, and eliminate the boy. Caesar returned to Rome, scattered much of the money he had stolen from Gaul, and was hailed by the people, if not by his fellow senators. Come the Ides of March, 44 BC, high-minded assassins knifed him twenty-three times, imagining that killing Caesar would please the mob and restore the Republic. It did neither. Instead, it prompted more violence, Octavius, 18-year-old heir to Caesar, and Mark Anthony, colleague of Caesar, came out on top, but their alliance broke when Anthony abandoned his wife, who was also Octavius's sister, and Rome for the comforts of Egypt and the always beguiling Cleopatra. His behavior did not go down well in Rome, and by war's end, Antony was driven to suicide by sword, Cleopatra to suicide by snakebite, and the Roman Senate, exhausted, agreed to make Augustus Princeps, first citizen of Rome, with considerable power if not actual offices. Not king, because they called it something else, and if the distinction was without a difference, most of Rome was willing to buy into the charade. Why would they not? 
Under Octavian, now Augustus, Rome prospered for a full fifty-six years. Under him, wars were few and far away, prosperity widespread and close to home. The city enjoyed impressive urban renewal. Augustus claimed to have found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. Marble plating, but the effect was the same. He also tried to restore the old Roman virtues. He believed in noblesse oblige and in public service. Ask not what your empire can do for you, ask rather what you can do for your empire. At the very least, high-born Romans should get married, stay married, have lots of good Roman children. Marriageable men who failed to take his advice were fined heavily. It was under Augustus that Livy wrote his great history of Rome, a book which tried to remind Romans of the self-sacrifice of earlier generations. From him we learned about the 6th century hero Cincinnatus, who, when Rome was in dire straits, was called from his poor farm, made dictator, led fellow citizens in defeating the enemy, then gave a power and returned to his poor farm. Livy stresses the poor to increase the virtue. The Society of the Cincinnati after the American Revolution honored this story, Washington having turned down the offer of a kingship after the war was over. Not that Augustus was going to leave office before time, nor did he use a plow or live in a farm, poor or otherwise. To be fair, he had a lot to deal with. Death took him, talk of murder is probably just talk, at age 75. The year was 14 A.D., the future emperor Vespasian had been born five years earlier. The unlikely rise of Vespasian's family is the subject of our next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.